0: rise up chorus presents meet the musicians podcast i'm your host matthew lapine now let's meet the musicians welcome to the 11th episode of meet the musicians podcast I'm your host, Matthew Lepine, and I'm thrilled to be leading you through a musician's story. Today, I have the opportunity to chat with a singer, actor, and voice artist whose talents have brought him from stages in New Jersey all the way to stages on the open ocean. My guest is Marcos Candilis, and I'm excited to have the opportunity to welcome him into our musical community. Marcos, Welcome to Meet the Musician's Podcast. Matthew, thank you so much. That's such a warm welcome. I really appreciate it. Well, and I I mean it. I'm very excited to have you with us. So when did you first realize that you enjoyed to sing in the first place?
1: I don't know if it was a matter of enjoyment or just a fact of my reality and that I can't remember a time when I wasn't singing. Although my first experience in some sort of training was back when I was four years old and my mother signed me up for piano lessons, which was unheard of in my family. There was no real musician known in my family on either my mother's side or father's side. We say that I got my music and my siblings, we got our music from our grandmother, are yeah, yeah. But as far as being anyone who trained in music, that was a foreign concept to my family. So I started like actually practicing music into some capacity through piano at four. But as for singing, it was something I've been doing ever since I could genuinely remember. And yeah, it didn't make for good, uh, good, uh, what's the word? Good impressions as a young child, on account <laughs> that I was a little bit more rotund. And so I was the small fat boy who liked to sing opera. So it doesn't oh. really make you popular.
0: Oh, that, eh hootie's popular when you have opera? That's great.
1: This is true. Pavarotti would agree.
0: That's right. So... When you were a kid, so your family wasn't musical at all, or they had an enjoyment of music? What was their oh, level of oh, musical love?
1: absolutely love music. My grandfather, my my mother's father, so she'd call him Papa, would put on opera records every Sunday whenever they could. And then my father, who's straight from Crete, which is a beautiful island in Greece... As he would say, the biggest and best island, but we'll just leave that to the people who want to discuss that. Anyway, beautiful music coming out of there. We call, I call it the country of Greece because it's basically the south of Greece. Like we have the south and the United States is full of country music. Their country music is really traditional. It talks about life. They have matinades, we call them, which are stories about the, the, the good and bad times of living, basically. And it's so poetic and it's almost melancholy and nostalgic in a way. But so we had, I had this Greek influence coming from my father, and that was also instilled in me and my siblings as kids because we would do Greek dancing every single week. So we had Greek Whoa, dancing. That's
0: so cool. Yeah,
1: Greek dancing and Cretan dancing. So you had double duty in terms of being exposed to this beautiful world of our cultural heritage through music, and then I had this classical route, more westernized, if you will, through my mother's upbringing back from the city so she gave me the inspiration to look for other artists such as Pavarotti or the works of Puccini and Verdi and all that stuff when I started in the opera. And then that also led me to other more contemporary artists like Frank Sinatra and such. So I had this combination of city crooning and country tunes just from a different country. But although <laughs> I have recently got I into it. American too well so I
0: want to go back to this this Greek and this Cretan <clears throat> folks dancing because that's so cool was there was it your family that was doing it or did you have was there was there a larger community of people that would get together and and do this dancing
1: it takes a village as they say and I had one blessed village in the Saint George Greek Orthodox community in Piscataway New Jersey where we would have Looking at it now, I think of all the opportunities I had to just express myself through artistic means outside of the regular school system that so many other kids that when you're going through it, you think that's just normal. This is just how it is. You go to Greek dance on Thursdays. You go to Cretan dance on Friday. You have theater on Wednesday. Then you have to go to something else on Monday, and you have Greek school on Tuesday. And it's just this is the regular thing that kids going through it can't see. But later on, when you're an adult, 20-20 hindsight, you have such an appreciation for the community that helped foster you and this creativity that I was able to just, you know, make a fool of myself with, make mistakes in, and just completely have this sandbox to experiment in. So that's where I really got my artistic freedom from as a kid, through my church community primarily, as well as the supportive system of the Edison public school system. So I some of my favorite memories are just in the band when I first started with saxophone. Or going back to my first choir performance or my first musical theater performance. All that stuff happened through public school here in New Jersey. So it was a combination of, again, this American heritage of trying to support the arts through the public school system, as well as the Greek heritage, trying to support their culture through their church community. And that combination is what made me, basically.
0: That's fantastic. So you were pretty active within your church, I take it?
1: Oh, that active would be an understatement. I was embedded in my church community when I was younger. Of course, that's had to wean off as later years put me at sea and I couldn't be in touch as I was. It's, you know, I can't just be an altar boy seven <laughs> days a week during Holy Week anymore. But those memories are ones that I look back on fondly and I wouldn't change them for anything. Oh, I
0: love that. So when you were... Were going through school, were you part of the theater program at your school? And did your school have much of a theater program?
1: For me, theater came... I first had my taste of live performance when I started at the Met in fourth grade. I was 10 years old and I met a woman who was the choral director named Elena Doria, late great Elena Doria. And my first taste of theater was the first class I went to. And she was already... She was known for being... Hyper sarcastic, very strict, but she loved you to death. And she was strict with you because she wanted the best from you. And the first class really put me off and I was crying at the end of it. Not proud to say, but it does lead to the funny bit, which is that when Elena comes up to me and at the end of it says, listen, kid, when the world gets you down, You just got to grab it by the balls and show it who's boss. (laughs) This is a 60-plus-year-old woman telling a 10-year-old boy who she just made cry, just grab the world by the balls. And so I took her advice and started being a little bit more sarcastic than I should have been, but also far more invested in my performance ability and my performance studies, if you will, at the Met. So that's where I first started theater, if you will, but not in the classical like straight acting theater tradition that we think of when a kid does a play. That didn't come for me until high school.
0: Okay, so what did you do when you were at the Met? What sort of acting uh, uh, tutelage did you get?
1: Well, we had weekly lessons. So that was every, oh my God, this is years ago. I want to say it was every Tuesday, no, every Thursday was general class. Thursdays and Saturday mornings were general classes. And then there would be specific classes for specific operas. So there was Magic Flute, I think was on Wednesdays. And of course, every night you had an opera. So my first opera was La Boheme. And so the training for an opera goes where you participate in the classes, the general classes, and then once the casting comes around, Elena, I was a part of the children's chorus, 10 years old, that's when she'll cast you in a production that she thinks you're suitable for and your schedule permits. So La Boheme was my first one. Oh, I such a soft spot for it. Wow. And uh, so you'd rehearse for that on a regular basis outside of the general classes. So, I, again, I th- look back on my childhood, and I have so much respect for my parents and my grandmother— Who would be driving me back and forth to rehearsals, to shows, to waiting outside for me while I'm doing a performance. Because these are hour-long performances, hours-long performances in some instances. So the rehearsal process was very regular. It was very comprehensive in that there was diction involved because we're singing in other languages. There was memorization involved because you're learning opera scores. It's not something that you just sing one song at a recital. No, you're going to be on stage for a while. You have to perform over the course of maybe one to two acts, depending on how long you're on stage. So it taught me a lot about the theater business subsequently as well through the rehearsal process of knowing what it takes to put on a professional production. Again, all these things I didn't know I was being exposed to at the time, but looking at it, I realized that's where I really got my first taste into professional performance and what it takes to be a professional performer.
0: And and what better experience for a young kid than to be part of a uh, children's chorus How did you get hooked up with that in the first place? Where did you even find out about such an opportunity?
1: My piano teacher, Ms. Berlinskaya, back in, ooh, I can't remember. It might have been 20, no, 2006, if that was when I was in fourth grade. I had been with this teacher for years playing piano in Woodbridge, uh, no, excuse me, the Metuchen Academy of Music, which is right across from the post office. Mm -hmm. and she had heard me sing one time and I just sang for her. This was after a couple of years of taking piano lessons with her. And she just tells my mother, you should take him to the Met. And my mother looks at her like she has four heads. Like, what what are you talking about? Take my kid to the Met. (laughs) He's playing piano for you. What's he got? What's he got to do with opera? Although, of course, my mother loved opera. My grandfather loved opera. And so it was something that she wanted to learn more about. And she got in touch with uh, I can't remember who she first contacted, but eventually they forwarded her to Elena Doria, And she is the head of the children's chorus. And then the way that she auditions kids is by having them sing Happy Birthday. Because believe it or not, it's a rather difficult song for kids to sing, in particular if they are what she calls tone deaf. <laughs> <Yeah>. So <laughs> that was the first test. And unfortunately, I was under the weather at the time. So here I am all stuffly, snuffly, I can't sing a lick, and then here I am, I don't know what's going on, mom just puts me on the phone with some old lady in my mind, and she's making me (laughs) sing happy birthday to her, it's not even her birthday, and I don't get cake at the end, I was very upset. But anyway, (laughs) I sang happy birthday, she gets my mom on the phone, she says, bring them in on Thursday. So? Oh no, 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 the first class was on a Saturday, because it was the same day as my sister's birthday party.
0: Oh no. So I
1: remember that. Oh man, so this was, this was... Oh, and this was also at a time where my mother was undergoing chemotherapy, because I do remember how she had different hair at the time with different wigs and whatnot. So I still remember the whole experience of this first class, from the audition to going to the class, to going to my sister's birthday party after, the whirlwind of emotion I had felt, which was somewhat excited when I got the call and got the confirmation to go, then very distraught at the end of the class after I was brought to tears, kind of encouraged afterwards as I told you by Elena herself and then that just started a fantastic relationship with opera and performance that I would not be who I am without
0: so when you were a kid how long did you stay with the Metropolitan Opera
1: I was with the Met from fourth grade and my final performance was in ninth grade so I that's say, a long time yeah the children's course will keep you there for as long as you look like a kid and the thing is, after, oh, well, here's the thing I got out of the children's course around uh, seventh grade or eighth grade, around there. And so ninth grade was actually as an extra in the opera War and Peace, where they needed a lot of male extras to go across the stage um, in different combinations, whether it's marching in a line or being like shot down and rolling off the side. It was different because there was no singing involved in that final production. But yeah, so that's how. That went. I had a few years, mostly in the children's chorus, singing and performing, and then one as an extra.
0: What an amazing experience. You know, here you are, this elementary and this middle school kid, and it's like, what are you doing this weekend? Oh, I'm going to the Met, you know, to perform. No big deal.
1: <laughs> for me, it was no basically, deal. I I got I got to go to school. I got to go to class. I got to go to voice lessons. I wasn't upset, but it was just an everyday thing. And I can't blame my kid self for that, but looking at it now, it's I, I wonder... Was there anything I could have done to have gotten more out of that experience? Because it is so wild to think that that's that's w- where I found my voice, you know, there in my church community, which was again, both things that I took for granted but are so extraordinarily spectacular for a kid to be raised in.
0: Yeah. So let's fast forward a bit. Now you're in high school and mm-hmm. you're you're thinking about possible career paths and Was music, was acting, was it always in your forefront, or did you have other more practical ideas?
1: Oh, well, I wouldn't call it practical, but as I mentioned, I was a bit more round in my youth, and so once I got out of the opera, as I thought, I was going to be cooler. I was going to do the cool thing. And what do cool kids do? They play football. So I go play football my freshman year. I don't do any theater. I have to do choir because I do enjoy singing. I loved it and Mrs. Wines was basically a second mother to me at JP. And so oh, I've,
0: She's an incredible teacher, isn't she? She is an oh. angel
1: incarnate. I can't I can't thank I can't thank her enough. Anyway, so I get started with just choir and this is the one re- I genuinely only have one regret in life. I'm happy I have it, but it still stings when I think about it because this one regret led me to never make any more mistakes like this and that was to think I shouldn't audition for the musical theater program because I was going to be cool and do a sport. So, so blatantly stupid of me to think (laughs) that now. But it gave me a good lesson, and because it was Sweeney Todd was my freshman year musical theater performance that everyone in the choir and theater were doing together. It was something else, because they never had... Such a big turnout, I believe, at the time, because so many choir people were interested. And so I saw all my friends from... I didn't know too many theater people at the time, but I saw all my friends in choir also doing this theater production, and I just really missed out, because I didn't even end up doing the lacrosse team like I thought I was for some reason. And uh, because of this regret, that's what led me to tell my sisters, when you get to high school, you're going to do every musical and every play, or at least audition for them. If you don't want to do them, you don't want to do them, but at least audition. And they did them all, all that they could. That's great. So I'm happy that I had that regret so that they don't have them themselves. So yeah, I started with choir my first year, got into theater my second year because I got injured in football. Complete tear of my ACL. Oh, wow. So that led to me wondering, okay, I guess I'm not going to play a sport. I looked into the musical theater uh, production that they were holding, and it was the Who's Tommy. And I remember going to audition with one of my good friends. uh, I call him Mason, Justin Marson. This is for you, Mason, if you're listening. But uh, so we went to audition. It was our first time, and then we got in, and it was such an amazing... It was familiar and foreign at the same time. It was familiar to me to be back in a production on stage, but completely foreign in that, A, it wasn't English... And two, it was of a different color than opera. And I liked it. It was refreshing. It was different. It was more relatable to me. It wasn't as removed from a kid who's singing opera compared to a middle school, excuse me, high school student who's singing in an American musical. Well, UK musical, I guess. Um, So that's where I got my taste of musical theater because of my football injury. And then that led me to continue progressing with musical theater eventually doing other musicals like uh, Jekyll and Hyde and Rent. And what I love is that Rent was my final high school musical, and it's based on La Boheme, which is my very first opera. So I always love, yeah, just little full circle things like that get me. That's right. But all through the while, I love full circle too. They're beautiful. I like a nice clean finish. But but throughout all that, I still had choir. Choir was always there for me from concert choir in freshman year to a cappella choir chamber choir. I did every regions, all state, national, all eastern. Um, I was awarded the governor's award for all state. So that was New cool. Jersey. I, I was the biggest music geek you could possibly think of. And I waved that flag with so much pride. I didn't care who saw. Absolutely right. love music, theater, everything Amen. I could get my hands on. And then you went to Westminster Choir College. Woo-hoo! All right. Beautiful place to be a musician. Now, who did you study with there? I was there for a year and studied with Elam Ely.
0: Ah, a friend of mine. He's wonderful. What a great teacher.
1: It's such a small world. But yes, he was so wonderful. And what was even greater is to know that he ended up teaching my sister just before his retirement. He was teaching my younger sister because she went to Westminster as well. Well, it's still going. That's so cool. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's there's another full circle moment for you.
0: Yeah. So... so now you said you were at Westminster for a year, or did you go through school there?
1: I was in school for a year from September 2011 until September 20, uh, excuse me, May of 2012. That was on Westminster's campus as a vocal performance major. And then after doing, I kind of got scouted for the musical theater program. I had auditioned for the musical just because I wanted to. It was the producers at the time. I didn't get in because it conflicted with my chapel choir schedule, so I wouldn't be able to actually do the productions. But the head of the program, Marianne Cook, heard me, as well as my, my friend Tim Hoya at the time, or Tim Joya, and he kind of uh, hired me, for, not hired me, but really commandeered me for his senior recital, and it was such a pivotal moment that made me see, hmm, I really do enjoy musical theater a lot. Maybe a little bit more than classical performance, and it was a Uh-oh. bit of an identity crisis because <laughs> here I am coming primarily from opera as a kid, but in more recent years I had musical theater really building up steam in my life, and so I did his senior recital, and then after that, Marianne just asked me, "Do you do yourself? Do you see yourself doing opera? Or do you see yourself in New York doing musicals?" And then I. I had to be honest with myself, and at the time, I saw myself more as a musical theater performer than an operatic performer. I do enjoy and love performing both currently and always have, but at the time, that's the decision I made, and so I switched from the Westminster Choir Campus to Westminster Choir College Campus to the main Rider Campus because Westminster was still under the umbrella of Rider University. So I did that for a semester. And the musical
0: theater program was no longer in Princeton at the Westminster campus; it was now on the Lawrenceville campus. Is that what it was? Yes. Got it. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you were still within the same institution. You essentially changed majors, which changed mm-hmm. your location, right? Yes. Did you get to continue uh, lessons with Elam?
1: No. I then went on to have lessons with Marianne on the West, on, excuse me, on the Lawrenceville campus.
0: Oh, cool. Okay. So how were your experiences on the Lawrenceville campus different than that when you were in Princeton?
1: It was far... Kind of two different worlds, right? Absolutely. It's It's... It baffled me how they were the same university but completely different colleges. One, primarily because Westminster Choir College is a conservatory that had about like 400 people on campus at any time, including administration and faculty. Very small, very tight-knit community. Very great for making connections and really getting to know your fellow performer or fellow student, whatever it may be. Now, when you move to Rider, here you are at a private institution that is full of people from all different types of majors, walks of life. All I mean, walks of life, even Westminster, but majors in particular, different interests. At Westminster, it was purely concentrated to music. Here I am now in my first experience thinking, oh, this one, this is someone who's looking into history. This is someone who's looking into science oh, I have to take this history course that's completely unrelated to music. Taking <laughs> classes that were unrelated to music was a little bit new to me because I only had one honors course that I took at Westminster that was unrelated. And so I, it was more of a liberal arts college experience at the time. And the performing arts education that I did get was, of course, more tailored to musical theater than I ever had. I didn't have ballet in Westminster. I didn't have musical uh, theater, dance, jazz. Um, I didn't have acting fundamentals like I did. I think that was an option to take at Westminster, but it wasn't a requirement like it was when you're a musical okay. theater
0: student. So and then, so now you said you had ballet class and, and all this. Did you have any experience with ballet or classical dance
1: I had, before that? I, the only dance experience I had was through Greek folk dance. None with ballet, none with jazz, none with tap, but I can safely say I came to love all of them. I'm such a big mover in that I will do anything that is athletic or artistic or combines the two just because I want the experience of knowing what that's like. Like, even nowadays, more recently, one combination of physicality and arts that I did was a taiko class, which is a Japanese drum set, a Japanese drum ensemble. Whoa. This was at the Kaoru Watanabe Studio in Brooklyn, in New York. So, I, that's just completely random, but this dance in uh, writer really opened me up to think, oh, there are different forms of performance art that I do enjoy even if I'm not the best at them. And they're only going to improve me as a performer by influencing my primary vocations in some way.
0: Yeah, absolutely, yeah.
1: Yeah, like there's, for example, you can think lyrically about a melodic line, but it's another thing to think about the physicality of having a line in dance. And even bringing that physicality to mind influences the way I may sing a line. That's just one thing I enjoy about combining the gross motor movements with the fine motor movements. So you have your mm. whole body as gross movement in dance, and then you have the fine flaps that you're working with when you sing. And there's no reason that they can't complement each other.
0: Absolutely. You know, even when I was at Westminster, I spent a lot of time studying eurythmics uh, with Thomas Parente. And oh we, man, we, I had Mr. Parente. Fan. <laughs> wow. it was a fantastic I mean I spent a couple of years in his classes and just studying and learning and I use those principles today and it, it's all about physicality and understanding mm-hmm. uh, uh, physiologically how how movement impacts your musical decisions and understanding just music in its natural form it totally changes the way I sing or play or think
1: musically absolutely we are our instruments as singers and there's no reason to think that you can remove yourself from that. It's not just these little two folds doing all the heavy lifting. <laughs> Flapping all around. No, right. no. It starts all the way from the belly to start it with. Sure you, you know, you got to get the breath all the way down there.
0: So you graduated rider, And so now you, you started with these really unique acting and musical experiences. Where, where did life take you after you graduated?
1: I didn't graduate rider. That's the oh. twist of the story. So between Westminster Choir College and Ryder, I thought, okay. well, one thing you should know about me is that if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it whole hog. And so I thought, okay, what do musical theater people do in this area? They go to New York and they audition 24-7. Now, I'm not in New York 24-7, so I auditioned three to four days a week. This was in the summer between my second semester and my third semester. So at the end of my first year and the start of my second year. I was absolute, I kid you not, I was absolute garbage in the beginning. I didn't know (laughs) what was going on. I didn't know what a musical theater audition entailed. I had never taken a class in my life. I never took tap, never took jazz. I wore the completely incorrect clothing for every single dance callback I ever got. (laughs) And luckily, I had all the time during uh, June, July, to really work with (laughs) The casting directors took pity on me and would give me points uh, or pointers and tips to improve, as well as work with some of my friends from Ryder, in particular Tim. Tim was so helpful in really guiding me to what I should do for audition's sake. Maybe you shouldn't wear that. Maybe you shouldn't sing that. And so I took his advice. I took the advice of the casting directors. And then towards August, oh, also, this was while I was doing, uh, I was playing Danny Zuko in the Plays in the Park production of Greece. So this is in oh, cool. Roosevelt Park. Yeah. So again, (laughs) me getting on that musical theater kick, I would be working for, I did an internship at the Middlesex County Government during the day. Sometimes I would go audition during the week and then I would come back at home at night and then rehearse for the production for Grease. And now in August was when I had a Royal Caribbean audition. Thankfully, I had the whole first part of the summer to muck my way through auditions that I was decent enough to get a callback for Royal Caribbean. And in the callback, I did my thing. Didn't hear anything for months. And then I get a call. I still remember it like it was yesterday. I got done with my chapel choir, not my chapel choir, my um, my history class. And I go to the library to start doing work, and I see I have a missed call. This is at Ryder. This is December, December 8th. So December 8th, I get a call from Ryder. Uh, excuse me, I get a call from Allison Ryder who was the casting director at the time (laughs) who contacted me or casting uh, specialist asking if I was able to come out to do a replacement for Royal Caribbean. I had to listen to that voicemail a few times to really understand what was happening. And after I did, I called my mother as soon as I could, told her the story, called my father, told her the story. And she said, I have a week to fly out. Now, luckily it was at the end of the semester. This was December 8th. Semester was going to end. I'd have all my finals done. It'd be peachy. I'd be done. I could with uh, not withdraw, but defer for a year and then come back whenever I wanted. The thing is, she called back the next day after I had accepted and said, actually, we need you to fly out tomorrow. So this is now December 9th and me thinking, holy cow, I'm not going to have my finals done. I'm not going to be able to perform in the final choir performance I need to to pass I'm not going to have any of this paperwork done in time. I just said yes and (laughs) figured everything would sort itself out after. And so I tried getting in contact with my father. He couldn't pick up. This was, oh, my God, this was in dance class. It was jazz with Robin Lewis. And I wasn't able to get my father on the phone beforehand. I got my mother on the phone. I told her I said yes, and I said we'd work it out later. And then Robin announced to the class that I was going to be going away on a contract because he had done Royal Caribbean gigs as well. Oh, okay. So I had his support. He gave me some pointers. And then we worked out all the paperwork we could. Um, Marianne, Robin, my guidance, the supervisors. And I still don't remember how it all happened where that same night, I was calling up my friends, whoever I knew, One of my best friends at the time, Ariel Lee, she read through the whole contract. I'll never forget Ariel. She read through the whole contract, top to bottom, came over, made sure we had everything I needed regarding, you know, outfits or uh, paperwork, documentation, all that stuff. And it was just a night that I did not sleep until I went on the plane. And so I got the call on December 8th, thought I had a week, was told December 9th I need to come out tomorrow. And then I flew out on December 10th. And that's when I started rehearsals for a week in Miami at their Hollywood studios. And after that, I was on my first ship, sailing around the Caribbean on the Jewel of the Seas. That is a
0: whirlwind.
1: Absolutely. Unbelievable. You you literally went from
0: a college undergrad to who was learning to be someday, maybe, if you ever made it, a professional performer to this, you know, early 20-something being like, hey, by the way, I'm a professional performer.
1: <laughs> That's, well, that was I
0: couldn't weird. even imagine that.
1: I didn't, I couldn't wrap my head around it until I was more, until I had some time to settle into the contract and notice, wait, I'm doing the thing that I was studying to do. Hmm. And of course, when you're younger, I was 19. You know everything when you're a teenager. So I figured, okay, I'm not gonna go back to school. I don't need to do that. I'm already doing this thing. Which was good because I was able to continue doing these ship performance gigs, which I which have genuinely made me who I am. But of course that closed other doors that I'll never know what it could have been. Maybe if I could maybe I would have stayed in New York, maybe I would have been a New York-based actor. Who knows? I don't know. I don't think about it too much, but I do know that I made that decision after realizing what you pointed out. I am doing professional performance. And I didn't have a stigma against cruise ships like some people do. I didn't know there was a stigma at the time. I was too in awe of the whole affair, knowing I'd get to travel the world, something I'd never really done. Is there a stigma
0: in the theater world?
1: Apparently so, and I didn't know about it until some of my friends pointed it out, how these are people who would go through conservatory training programs, particularly in the UK, I remember one of my friends, her name was Charlotte, and she would say how people would poo-poo uh, cruise ships. Or you have Simon Cowell saying, oh, you sound like a cruise ship singer. And there's this negative stigma that I wasn't aware of that, I mean, thankfully I wasn't because maybe that would have influenced my decision to go. I doubt it because it just sounded too amazing at the time. But I, after, even after I learned of it, I just didn't care because I knew how hard I had to work to be so malleable in terms of my artistry, how difficult it was in terms of a lifestyle choice to know you're going to have to remove yourself from most of the people who you know and love and all those connections for a period of time. But as a result, you're going to learn to live and love people and you're going to learn from all over the world. And it's, everything comes at a cost. I'm happy with the investment I made. I understand the cost that it took. And I'm just looking forward to using those experiences nowadays while I'm now, I call it land life, but it took me a (laughs) while to realize, wait, it's not land life anymore. It is life. This is reality for me. I'm trying to just year. transfer yeah. that onto land.
0: So let's talk really quickly about this cruise ship performing. What What is the typical day like for you? I mean, how many performances are you doing a day on these ships? Are they Is it the same performance over and over, or are you constantly cycling through performances? What's it all about?
1: It really depends on what ship you're on that determines what your schedule looks like, as well as what shows you're performing. For the most part, you're going to have a welcome aboard show, you're going to have a farewell show, you're going to have sets, so these are jazz sets, they might be a more 80s set or a a breezy set, we call summer breeze, or a 70s set or a captain's cocktail set, so those sets can take place anywhere on the ship for any particular event at any given point in time, unlike the welcome aboard and farewell, which are pretty self-explanatory. Happens before and after Mm -hmm. the cruise is done. Most of those shows that happen in the main theater will happen twice in a night to give guests the opportunity to see it because there are always two dinner seatings in the dining room. The dining room comes included, and so they figure, okay, if people are going to be going to two showings, we want to make sure they can get dinner and a show. So you're always doing at least two shows when you have a theater show, for the most part. And then you have your sets, which usually happen once a cruise. And those can be scheduled at any point in time. They could be during the day. They could be at night. Depends. For example, you have the 80s and 70s gigs. Those are always at night because that's when the party's at. And you have something like Summer Breeze, which might happen in the middle of the day when we're docked in port. So sometimes Mm. you can't get off because you got to work, which is fine. It is what it is. But those are the reality of sets. And then the other main things that you're cast for are the production shows. So the production shows for most of the smaller ships and general ships in Royal Caribbean, all of them will have some sort of musical review show that is a conglomerate of whatever songs they felt fit the theme of the production. And those are the ones that I've had most experience with on account that I have done five contracts over seven years, but only on two ships because I particularly enjoyed the itineraries and two of them were replacements. So replacements you don't really get to choose. Uh, you do get to put your requests after a contract is completed, and you could say, Hey, I want, I would prefer one, two, and three, which I was very graciously given those whenever I had the opportunity to request. Nice. But uh, so the shows, you can pick a ship for the itinerary, you can pick it for the contract duration, you can pick it for the shows. And so we talked about the welcome aboard, farewell, the sets, and now the main thing are the shows. So besides the musical reviews, uh, there are also Broadway shows. So we had Chicago for a time. We have Cats. We had Jersey Boys for a time. We have Hairspray. In particular, this is Royal Caribbean that I'm speaking of. And these productions are full scale. They okay, are Okay, so you're amazing. not bringing
0: like, the national tour onto the ship for a period of time. No, it's no. you, the Royal Caribbean paid actors, yep. who are creating this production.
1: Absolutely. You are there the entirety of the contract doing all of these performances. There is no other team that comes on to do these, and which is why it's one of the few performance gigs that, funnily enough, you think of a cruise ship, you don't think of it being stable nowadays. But in truth, it is one of the more stable gigs you could possibly get because it lasts four months, usually six to 12, because they invest so much in you, Mm. especially in the install period and the rehearsal period on land, that you're going to be there for a while. And it's good to know that as a performer, a steady paycheck isn't a common thing. No, it's not. <laughs> so especially as someone who's starting out, it sounded too good to be true to me. And it right. was and fantastic. With
0: a, and with a Broadway show, you, especially a new show, you don't know how long it's going to run. Just mm-hmm. because it's scheduled to run for uh, 12 months doesn't mean it's going to make it 12 months. <laughs> you Absolutely. Know? Uh, whereas with this, you know that The ships are going to, well, up until COVID, the ships are going to run (laughs) and they're going going to be full of people. Yeah, I know. And they're going to be full of people and those shows are going to happen. Maybe they'll change what show you're doing, but it's still you. That's a big deal.
1: Absolutely. And some of the different experiences that you get in a cruise ship rather than on land is that you sometimes have the opportunity to perform and put together your own headliner shows. Those I really enjoyed and appreciated later on in my career with ships because in the beginning. I didn't even know what a chart was. I just got flown out one day to Miami, this little 19-year-old Jersey boy, and told, okay, you're going to be the boy one on this track, and you're going to perform these songs, and then you're going to do your job, and this is that and the other thing, and it's going to be great. You just don't know it yet. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. <laughs> just take me where my medical is. I don't know how to get this done. But later on, once I'm able to appreciate the whole experience and have my sea legs and just be able to rock onto a ship within 12 hours' notice, that was another story. But, um you have the ability to be more creative and explore who am I as a performer and what kind of artistry and entertainment do I want to put together in a headliner show for someone. And that was something I really enjoyed doing later on because I was able to tap into my classical background, my musical theater background, my Greek background, my instrumental works, my uh, my campy musical theater at the end too with some grease that we added at the end of the show, even some uh, traditional pop with uh, Frank Sinatra. It was... Such a great experience. Cruise ships were such an amazing playground for me to explore. Because on top of the performances, even for dancers or any type of artist who's there for a long time, you have a decent amount of technology and rehearsal space at your fingertips. And there are always events going on, whether it's bingo or some type of Diamonds International presentation or shop and port guide. The theater is busy. The theater's booked. But there are always opportunities to find a space for you to rehearse, for you to create. There are instruments at your disposal, in particular a piano at all times, and um, it was really something, something else. Because to think the level of, the caliber of the technological know-how that the staff had, in particular to support mm. these performances, is unparalleled in most situations that you'll find on land. It's really high-quality stuff.
0: That's great to hear. I, I, I'm happy to hear that, and I hope everyone listening helps us to extinguish the stigma against the cruise ships. We want, we want you to realize that it's just as great of a theatrical opportunity as anything on land.
1: Absolutely. So I have
0: to ask, was it tough, you know, acting, dancing, singing on a moving ship?
1: Here's, I, some people have more difficulty than others on a moving vessel. If you have any difficulty at all, you will know very quickly and you will know that this gig is not for you. For example, one person, my cousin, we're very similar, but he can't stand being on ships. Like His his fiance, their family loves cruising, and every time they took him, in the beginning of their relationship, they would take him. No, not so much because they know he's just not going to enjoy himself because he can't leave the room. So if you have motion sickness, you're not going to be performing on ships. But as far as the actual stability of performing on a ship, it is extremely stable because the vessels are so large.
0: (laughs) On (laughs) top of that,
1: they also have stabilizers that they'll deploy when necessary in rougher seas that really help to keep the movement calm. And sometimes they'll do that specifically for while the shows are going on because it is a safety hazard otherwise. Now, that's not to say that it's always smooth sailing. No pun intended. But uh, I have to. (laughs) Oh, I'm cursed with boat puns for the rest of my life. <laughs> but whatever. Uh, and so sometimes we do have the instance where it's listing, which is the, t- uh, the degree at which the ship is rocking. And there are certain degrees that you have to change the show. So I don't wow. remember them all off the top of my head, but it might be one degree you take out, you adjust some choreography, 1.5 or 2 degrees, the girls go in flats. And then maybe three degrees, you stop the show. So safety is always the number one priority whenever working on ships. I'd say in theater in general, but especially on ships because you're on a tin can floating in the middle of the biggest pool you'll ever find. And if anything goes (laughs) wrong, help is very far away. So it's always better to be safe than sorry, and that's That's why I always appreciated the safety of the crew that we were always supported by. Well,
0: sure, on the Broadway, off-Broadway, the Met, on those stages, the the stage doesn't move (laughs) unless Mm. it's part of the set design, right? This is true. The stage doesn't move. This has nothing to do with the (laughs) set design. The The whole world is moving around you. Oh, what a neat experience. So now you've been doing a lot of voice acting. What's that like? And how's that different than being on stage?
1: Voice acting is so much more intimate than performing on stage. Because whenever you're performing on stage with or without microphones, you always have to play to the back of the room. You're always putting on a... An extra level to make sure that you're readable, especially even with your facial features, your body movement, because you might think in your head or it might feel like a large movement or some sort of indication, whether it's a blocking cue or stage command, whatever it could be. You might think you're doing more than you actually are that the audience can read. With voiceover, the mic picks up everything. Absolutely Mm -hmm. everything. It Mm -hmm. even picks up your smile, which is why they'll always say... Just smile. If you're going to be doing a read, especially in commercials, you do need to have a more positive spin on anything. Even if it's a tough subject, for example, if you're doing something medical-related and it might not be the best thing, sometimes even putting on a smile will help lighten the delivery. Just because. It's fascinating. What, similar to how the camera picks up everything in film, the microphone mm-hmm. picks up everything in voiceover. And so it's a much more intimate experience where you have to learn to be far more conversational and less presentational.
0: What What are some of the... um Things that you've been doing recently as a voice actor. Do you do mostly commercials? Is it, is it um, are, are you doing voiceovers for shows?
1: Voice projects that I do get come in and they're usually narrative. Because that's the demo that I present first and foremost. Because that's the work that I enjoy the most. Yes, I do commercial work. I just had an audition, I think it was two days ago, for a telephony uh, opportunity where there's someone, so many people nowadays are trying to get these virtual telephone systems in place so that when people call them, they'll be directed through their queue as necessary. And there are certain companies that will have pools of talent that they'll say, okay, we have this voice for you to pick. So I auditioned for that recently. Haven't heard back from them yet. It was only a few days. But one gig that I did just book today, this morning, actually, I can't say too much because I signed in the NDA already, but it's a <laughs> Greek animation series. So it helps to learn another language when it comes to voiceover, especially if you're fluent in it, because it opens up a whole other market to you. And I don't even have a Greek demo up. They just know me by name. So they see, oh. okay, I have a, I have a, prof- a a professional website is key. It is your storefront. So that's the first thing when it comes to any type of voiceover yes. work. Having that professional storefront, just sitting there, I'm not even advertising it, and people are already sending me requests to audition and gigs, and I do perform these gigs. I like the low load that I have right now. And I know that once my load frees up in the future, I'll be able to pursue it more heavily because it's already there. And so the Greek gig is coming at a good time because it's, I like a challenge. This will be my first animation gig in Greek. I've done some commercial things in Greek. I've so never done it. So it's entirely in Greek. One. Yes, entirely in Greek. And it's children's. So they're looking for someone who can also play in higher pitches while still being intelligible and also, still being able to act properly. Ta-da!
0: That's it's right. It's
1: really making my brain fire on all cylinders, and I'm a big lover of languages. So it's 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 such a beautiful compliment to singing because singing you have musicality to express yourself and your emotions, and when you strip that away, now it's more about the character that you're able to create and you're able to bring to the performance. So they're two two sides of the same coin: singing and voice acting for me.
0: Brilliant! I love this. Uh. When COVID clears up, what are you looking to now do? Are you looking to continue with voice acting? Are you looking to go back on the ship? Are you looking to be land-based? What are, what are your thoughts?
1: What a good question. When COVID clears up. Whew. Um, Which we're getting close. We are very getting close. closer. Fingers crossed that it stays that way. For me, um, I am right now, one thing that I'm happy to report is that I have been looking into songwriting programs for a master's education, because songwriting, I didn't mention, I fell in love with in high school when I was a lot more emotionally bottled up or reserved as a teenage boy. I wasn't as expressive as I am now. And so I would say things through song. And as the years went by, I had so many song ideas come up. I have a list on my phone of songs that I need to make. And it was always difficult for me at the time because I was spending so much of my artistic ability in entertainment when I'm working as a full-time performer. And then I even had other part-time things going on. I finished my degree actually in liberal arts while I was on the ship. I even worked as a virtual assistant on the ship. That's how I got my start. So I was always, wow, I always had my finger in too many pots. Um, but yeah, so songwriting has always been this thing that has been on the back burner for me and i really want to bring that to the fore. And that's why I'm choosing to invest in a master's program. Not this year, while things are still up in the air. But next year, I do plan on enrolling something around the fall. So hopefully that'll happen. And I'm just getting invested in whatever I can find now. So I've joined a magazine subscription called American Songwriter. I've submitted some songs that I've written recently, and I got critique from them. I take workshops on that. And I take some voice and speech workshops I've done recently. One was for a... Colombian accent, so I love speaking in different accents. <laughs> it's so good to know that you can put this on whenever you need, because you don't know who's going to need it. And I could do this with Greek if you need to say, hey, "I need you to be Steve Pisanos." Oh, this is a fun! I say Steve Pisanos <laughs> because this. Is so this- good. Oh I my God! This. <laughs> this was a gig that I booked for National Geographic. It was supposed to be a World War II documentary. And I was going to be this famous Greek fighter pilot, Steve Pisanos, who was world, uh, worldly renowned and he was vetted and he was meddled and all these good things for him. But they cut the role. So I booked the gig and then they cut oh. the role after the fact. And he's like, I'm so sorry. I said, that's fine. Just keep me in mind for future things. And in the back of my head, I'm thinking, well, there goes that. But it really that was the first instance where I was shown, hey, it's good to be able to make funny noises with your mouth. Funny sounds for people <laughs> to think, hey, you actually sound like someone I know. So I could put on a Greek accent. I can do an Italian accent if you want. And uh, I could do a Indian accent. It depends if you want it to be from Mumbai or someone who's a little bit more from the UK. It could be a little bit different. And uh, I got more of a southern drawl if you want. I can do deep south in Alabama. I was with a woman for my last contract, and she taught me a lot. And I love the way her mama would speak whenever I go to visit. And uh, yeah, so I could also, of course, put on my Jersey accent, which I had to... Even that, too, was very aspirated. That's very Jersey. I really became in tune with the fact that I have an accent when I was on my first contract and I met my first New Zealander, who I lovingly call Kiwis. He was my friend named Cam. Cam, if you're listening. And I couldn't understand him for the life of me. I couldn't understand him when I first heard him speak. And he said, this is the problem that I have when I try to order pizza in this damn country. They can't (laughs) understand me. He's like, you order it. Oh, but that's when I came to realize I have an accent. And one of my, my dance camp at the time, uh, Danny, love you, Danny. He would say, oh, honey, your jersey comes out when you're emotional. I love it. I said, like, what, ta- what are you talking about? My jersey comes out. And, you know, it's just so many people go through life not willing they have an accent. And that was me for 19 years. And then after I found out I had one, I thought, hey, well, how many can I learn? What 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 others are there? So if I'm to put on a Scottish accent right now and I'm going to talk really fast and you're not going to really get what I'm going to talk about, there are some things that you're not going to quite understand, but it's not your fault. If I talk to you like this, I'm being further away from you when it comes to your intelligibility and now it's going to be harder for us to connect. So instead of talking like that to you, I'm going to talk to you like a Northeastern American.
0: I'm dying over here, by the way. This is absolutely making my day. This is brilliant.
1: (laughs) Throw this is me talking me. to what myself. Else you have? Throw it at me. <laughs> oh my God. So, Ingurisu uh, is uh, very hard uh, for uh, Japanese. But uh, because I learned a little Japanese, that's, oh, this is my tip. When it comes to learning accents, the best thing you can do is learn the fundamentals of the language. So, learn the phonetic fundamentals of the language, the basic phonemes that the language is based on. And then the accent will come as a result of you having the vocal posture, the, excuse me, the oral posture that comes with that form of speech. It's such a great um, hack, chi- uh, cheat, trick, whatever you want to call it, that it's I never thought yeah.
0: You're taking the sounds from that language that are naturally found in that language the way a native would speak it, and you're incorporating it into English, right? It's kind of like a, you're using that as a font. If you exactly, will,
1: right? exactly. It's still English. You're still speaking English, you're still typing English, but the way it looks is different, the way it sounds is different.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. so
1: cool. So that's I didn't why know I like you
0: did accents like that. That made me so happy. Yeah, I <laughs> love no like, I love
1: accents like that. And I used to be I used to do it unconsciously when I first met my my Kiwi friend in at nineteen, <laughs> and I would start copying him unconsciously. And then I became more aware of it and realizing, okay, I'm doing this because I want to connect with people naturally. After I became more attuned to it, I was able to understand, okay, not everyone likes that, so I don't do it all the time. But when I know I'm being difficult, when it's difficult for someone to understand me, I'll turn it on right away so that they can get to the heart of my message so I can connect with them. I want to bridge the gap between whoever I'm speaking with as quickly as possible. And so because I have the ability to change my oral pronunciation and the way it's received, I feel like it would be disrespectful of me to try to ha- tell someone, oh no, you have to meet me here in my American accent. I'm not going to come to you in your Thai accent, in your Japanese accent, in your Indian accent, because, even though I can. I feel like that would be rude of me if they're having difficulty. If they're not, Bob's your uncle. You're having a great time. We're fine. But if you are having difficulty and I have the ability or you have the ability, by all means, feel free because that person will be thankful. You know, I just put on a Scottish accent. Yeah. Which one's more easy for you to understand, Scottish or Eastern American? <laughs> you know, exactly. it's just it's it's just a matter of code switching to whichever one is more appropriate for the scenario.
0: Marcos, that's great. Uh, a question I ask everybody, but uh What do the words rise up mean to you and mean in your life?
1: For me, I have to say, in recent years, I I wanted to learn how to define myself by one word, and it was to care. So when it comes to rise up, that would mean to me, rise up to the occasion. Whatever it is, whatever cross you've been given to bear, rise up to meet it, because you weren't given it without reason. You were given it because you can handle it. You are given it because you are equipped, and if you're not, you are given it because it's an obstacle for you to learn how to be equipped for the future ahead. The obstacle is the way in Stoic philosophy, as Ryan Holiday is keen to say, and caring is such an integral part of my being, and I wouldn't, that's the biggest thing I could recommend to someone when I hear the word rise up. Rise up to the occasion, care about what you do, and care about the people who who you impact by your actions and your life.
0: And that is a word that is missing from so many people's vocabulary, care. Care, empathy, and acting on it too, right? Caring, but acting on, on your, your ability to care, to make somebody's world
1: a little bit better. Absolutely.
0: Marcos, this is great. Thank you so much for having this conversation. I'm so appreciative of you and all this great work you're doing. And I can't wait to come and see you in your next production
1: Oh, Matt, thank you so much. I sincerely appreciate being on your show. It's been so fun talking about music and talking about performing in cruise ships in a way that I haven't had the ability to in recent times because we've been so estranged from our family and friends. So this is so refreshing. Thank you so much. Yeah,
0: and and, you know, anything that we can do to keep the music and keep spirits alive right now is so important. And as soon as, I know, as soon as we can get back to some semblance of normal, whatever that may turn into, because I don't think normal will be the same normal that we've always had. And mm-hmm. that might be okay. I, th- I think we're going to be better people for it. So let's keep our fingers crossed and hope for the best.
1: I do want to go back to that songwriting kick and say, I am all open for co-writing, any type of creation. If you're a producer, let me know. I'm really trying. That's my biggest push right now. I have voiceover. I have my piano, my guitar, all that stuff I'm enjoying and singing. But songwriting is something I'm really digging my heels into now. And so if anyone is listening to this and wants to connect, whether it's through voiceover, music, songwriting, please do feel free to reach out to me. My website is marcoscandilas.com. So I'd and love Marcos, to. And Marcos, I you. will
0: make sure to uh, link that in the um in the in the show notes. Perfect. So I'll make sure your website is in there. So if you want it, it's marcoscandilas.com. You can click on it from the show notes, go to his website ask for more info, send him a message. He will get back to you. He is a, a, a great guy, and, and he's been so responsive even in just getting things together for this show. So, Marcos, thank you so much.
1: Matt, thank you so much. This has been an absolute pleasure.
0: And, and same for me. Meet the Musicians podcast is produced by Rise Up Chorus, a community music organization whose focus is on bringing the community together to sing. For more information about Rise Up Chorus, visit us online at www.riseupchorus.org. This is Matthew Lapine saying thank you so much for listening. We can't wait to have you join us again for our next episode when we Meet the Musicians.